This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Hello everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Good afternoon. It is actually not a morning now. It is actually an afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Sunday. Uh, I have no idea what day it is. Maybe I think it's the 16th. Actually, it's May 16th on a Sunday. Can you dig it? I am Sam Lacrosse, your host. If you do not listen to this podcast, and a lot's been going on. I mean, this is going to come out later in the day because we have had a, or I should say, I've had rather a lot going on. I'm sure you guys have a lot going on anyway. So this is, but you know, this is my podcast. So we're going to talk about me. So. Um, I am actually moving. I, uh, can finally announce that even though I know probably no one from my work listens to this and a lot of people from my work listen to this. I accepted a job in another city in Austin and I'm very excited about it. Very nervous too, but very excited about it to go out and live my life actually where I can live my life there. You know, in Boston, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty, you know, amazing how closed up things are still out here. It's been, it's fun, began to open up in the last I would say week or so by a good amount, but it's like a week, two weeks, month or so, but it's still remarkably closed from whatever, you know, every, you know, all the other parts of the country are. And I'm, I'm actually moving down to Texas. So in Austin, the Austin area. So if you're in the Austin area and you just want to, you know, hang out with a podcast guy, you know, feel free to email me, you know, real Sam Lax on every social media. So, but anyways, so I'm very excited to be getting out of here just to live my life again, get out, see people, meet people. It's way too shut in here for me. The culture change was very distinct as well, and I'm looking forward to getting in a place where I think I would not only live my life better, but you know, just kind of, I would say, fit better. And I've kind of done a lot of those things in the last, um, the last, a lot of soul searching the last couple months about like what I really want out of that kind of stuff. So uh, my dad was kind enough to fly in and pack up most of my stuff into a U-Haul. And drive that back to Ohio, where I am from, and I will be driving in two weeks from, or actually a week from Wednesday. It's crazy to think about. Back to Ohio, and then cross the country to Texas. Going to move in on that Friday, and have a fundraiser I'm doing. So I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to start the new job on the first of June. So it's all going to hit very, very quick. I have almost nothing left in my apartment except for what I can bring in my car and what I can, you know, take with, you know, the essentials for living, basically. And uh, that's that's kind of it. So it's you know it's been really surreal these last couple of days and saying goodbye to people and saying hello to new people and you know all this other stuff. So it's it's really crazy. But don't want to bore you with my personal life and everything that's going on in it because you know it's kind of even though it does shape the confines of the blog and the podcast. You guys probably want to come here for the podcast material. So 
This week I chose to write about something that I had been feeling for a long time, not necessarily myself, but with a lot of other people particularly, and I feel like, like a lot of people have come to this, and I kind of had a, um, you know, epiphany about, you know, kind of how people treat people, and I kind of wanted to write a broader topic about kind of people treating each other like crap, and then, you know, kind of, you know, expand that out to the greater sense of our culture, and you really use that to kind of form a narrative about how a lot of things are going now, so... We'll just get right into it. So if there's one fact that I think everyone can still agree on in this very, very bizarre climate we're living in, it's that there is no more disgusting of a species than a human male in a public restroom. None. Zip. Zero. The closest thing I could think of would probably be a wildebeest. If that wildebeest was 15 shots down a Jim Beam, it would have just gotten hit with a tranquilizer dart. Probably several, depending on what he used as a chaser. But if he were a real man and didn't use chasers, the wildebeest is probably as good as we're going to get. This realization became apparent on a trip to visit my family down in Florida in February of 2020. This was slightly before the whole Ricky Gervais incident at the Golden Globes, which I wrote about in Wokeness as a Weapon, which remains one of my favorite posts, don'treadthisblog.com. The pandemic, the pandemic had not yet hit, and people in that glorious state were floridating on all cylinders. It was a Saturday, my brother and sister had just gone home, and my parents and I decided to stay out and experience some fun nightlife before I jetted off the next day, which is when the whole Ricky Gervais thing happened. I was enthralled that my mom was there. I have horrible social anxiety, and my mom is the greatest social lubricant I think I've ever seen in my life. She can work a room like nobody's business. She can start a conversation with anyone, even when she doesn't want to. My dad and I, whom I inherited my social ineptitude from, breathed a sigh of relief when she bumped into a younger woman and her boyfriend who were on their second date. I could tell immediately that this girl was way too attractive for this guy. She had everything, face, body, personality, the whole nine yards. She was a former Florida State cheerleader. She had a good job. She wanted to date with Jameis Winston once, apparently. The guy was nice, and I was impressed by him simply by the fact that, he, that this girl had even go, agreed to go on one date with him, let alone two. My dad started to fumble through a conversation with him, and the mood began to ease. The comfort level began to rise, with my mom yammering away with his date while we talked about career paths and business while wasted. A humorous topic, to say the least, particularly with a group of people we encountered. This guy didn't give a flying fuck about this time, having this kind of a conversation on a Saturday night out with the hottest girl in the bar, but he entertained the socially inept lacrosse men enough so we could make it through without spontaneously combusting. My mom, unfortunately, had to use the restroom and excused herself to do so. Not, um, I was going to say, not, not un, uh, unfortunately that she had to go to the bathroom. Unfortunately, she had to leave us to kind of stew in our own like conversational malaise type, type of thing. So anyway, before the people come out and yell at me. On her way to the bathroom, with my anxiety skyrocketed because of her losing her flawless social skills, Two men who resembled wildebeest walked out of the same door she was about to enter. This was strange. My mom, absolutely, absolutely puny compared to these two behemoth men going into the bathroom in the same room, it didn't compute initially. I quickly noticed that the bar had gender-neutral bathrooms, and the two dudes simply walked out of the situation that my mom was about to go into. While bizarre that they went into a single-person bathroom together, I shrugged it off and turned back to the conversation, which was quickly morphing into the quote, how, how the quote, operations into finance transition within the corporate structure goes. I pained for my mom to come back. Thankfully, she did, albeit sooner than I expected. Much sooner, in fact. However, when she came back, she told me and my dad only two words. Let's go. We were puzzled. My mom seemed to be having a great time. When we asked why, she said, she said, she said that she hadn't gone to the bathroom. The two aforementioned wildebeests that went in before it absolutely obliterated the lone toilet that she could use. There was piss all over the toilet seat, shit on the walls, and used toilet paper all over the floor. I could just imagine the scene now. 
Two large men, drunk off their asses, crossing swords in the bathroom, quite literally having a pissing contest. It made me shudder just thinking about it. After saying an emotional goodbye to Jameis's ex and a much very less emotional goodbye to her boyfriend, we ended up leaving. Think about that scenario for a second and try to compare and compute the math in your brain. If you're looking at the information in a vacuum, it makes absolutely no logical sense whatsoever. What kind of devolved human would completely fuck a public restroom in such horrific fashion? Why would you expose your human brothers and sisters to your own excrement? They don't want to see your, your piss and shit. They don't want to embrace your own bowel movements. They don't want to see the other end of your dinner and drinks after it's gone through your digestive tract. Jonathan Haidt has pioneered disgust research on a psychological level, and the one fact is abundantly clear. The behavior is not fucking socially acceptable. And yet, we engage in it all the time. One reason, albeit a lower one, I go to the gym so early in the morning is to avoid the crowd of animals that do this type of behavior. But, unfortunately, when there are less of, when there are less of a crowd that pump themselves full of HGH and throw creatine all over the counters like a Parkinson's diagnosed Tony Montana, these piss-poor offenders still rear their ugly heads and dicks. Seemingly every morning I face the same horrible reality. Me on my knees, scraping dried piss flakes off a toilet seat more infected than a pre-vaccine COVID mask that some spaghetti strap jerk-off didn't have the decency to clean with a bundle of toilet paper that's also been tenderly used, probably by the same jerk-off. Now, you might not be scraping piss flakes, but there are another, other things that can flare up around you that I would argue are similar. A door that could be held open but isn't. A guy tailing you when there's no space for him to get around you and go any faster. A meme that gets half-wasted due to an inc incompetent manager talking about shit that no one cares about for the first half of it. This word has a definition, one that deserves exploring. Entitlement. According to the dictionary, the definition for the word entitled is, quote, having a right to certain be benefits or privileges, a right to benefits especially sp specified especially by law or contract, end quote. This is, on its face, an absurdity. About a year ago, I wrote a post on how absurd the modern connotation and notion of privilege is, and why the words should stop being used in that context to create more division and lies. But entitlement seems to be worse. Not only is entitlement worse, it seems to be the genesis of talks about privilege. It's right there in the definition. But, like all the root causes of problems, their veins sink deeper than the ripple effects that they cause. Entitlement is manifesting itself in many different forms and fashions throughout our society. It has infiltrated every sort of culture within the grand American culture scheme. The question we must ask, as always, is why? In a time with such division and vitriol flowing through our country's bloodstream, this is, oddly enough, one of the few consistent things that everyone feels that they have a right to. This is an awful thing, mostly due to the nature of how it persists within people. If you remember our talks about privilege, the main reason I say that it does not exist in the context of how most people view it is now, in terms of incredibly demeaning and false talks such as gender or race, is because everyone pursues it. We all pursue a place where we can be among the, quote, privileged in our society. It is the nature of the human condition to expand and improve yourself in the society at large. If you can draw a line and demonstrate a single trend across time, I would argue that it would be that exact thing. Entitlement, however, is a much different thing than that. There is nothing wrong with pursuing privilege of wanting to get ahead in society because of your own merit. Where privilege becomes distorted and wrong is when people get ahead based on the wrong ways and abusing their influences over others. Entitlement doesn't create a class system, one that is modern and mo flexible and moldable depending on how you interact with it. Entitlement creates a caste system. It creates a social hierarchy that is not based on merit, but perception. Nothing you do inside of that system really matters in the end. The only thing that does is how you perceive things and how you see the world. It's about as narcissistic and selfish as you can get. But people aren't dumb, mostly. They know these things. 
They can exploit them. And no one does this better than our ruling class, the people who have created the ultimate caste system based on nothing meritocratic at all. And that's why they leverage both sides of the mob with these ridiculous talks of, quote, equity and, quote, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps in order to give your, keep them, themselves above you. These people aren't skilled or talented or anything worthy of the positions that most of them hold. Their talent may have gotten them there, but it's now their willingness to wield the most divisive weapons of our time in order for them to decay and rot there. These are just some of the several tools in the grand machine of lies, which all boils down to one thing, entitlement. While these examples might be grand and over-exaggerated, they are done so with a purpose. None of these people have any power unless we give it to them. The douchebags that piss on toilet seats and the douchebags that piss on middle America are the same breed of people. Their entitlement, their phony belief that they have immediate access to privileges over others simply because they believe it to be true, is nothing short of sickening. But us as individuals can do something about it. You have nothing if you haven't earned it. You're only perpetuating a lie, or much worse so, a self-lie. You buck responsibility for the sake of a clout chase, getting high off your own supply. The people who are truly privileged in a society are the ones that have bought, bought in the most, the ones that have created the most opportunity for themselves and others out of hard work, proper positioning, and respect for those same other people and their right to do the same. A non-tyrannical society begins with a non-tyrannical self. The same is true with a non-entitled society and a non-entitled self. It must, because only the, the, the shine of an, an individual identity can beat back the corruption of those who have forsaken their own. Entitlement, the perceived right to privileges and rights, is the bane of what's wrong with a lot of our society. You yourself should take it on yourself to beat it back. To do so, we need to see what entitlement truly is and how it manifests in our culture, why people pursue that entitled mindset, and how to counteract it as an individual. And I think it's a path worth pursuing, because, like Rick James once said, Entitlement is a hell of a drug. On October 10th of last year, the great and powerful Bill Burr took the stage of Saturday Night Live as the host for the second episode of that particular season. There are a couple things that should, I should immediately add for context. First and foremost, Saturday Night Live is absolutely fucking awful. It has been for quite some time. It's a shame. It's fallen so far from the massive pedestal I put it on when I was younger, when legends such as Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Eddie Murphy, and Chris Farley were on the stage. Second, Bill Burr is not the typical host for these type of things. He's not one to, quote, go with the flow and just vibe with the rest of the cast members. He's going to get up and say what he wants to say. And thank goodness he did. For his opening monologue, Bill Burr opened in typical fashion, made a shitty joke about mass, made everyone in the room uncomfortable with his spunkiness, and proceeded into an angry rant. He then went down the mask wormhole and started going on about how it was your choice to wear a mask, but it was also your choice to kill the kid down the street with the asthma or put your grandma next to him out of her, out of her misery after she just lost her husband to cancer. After a joke about Rick Moranis getting clocked in Times Square, which was hilarious, by the way, he then proceeded to go down the cancel culture route, taking aim at people who were some, trying to somehow weirdly cancel John Wayne movies. But then, Bill Burr took quite the unexpected route and went after a group of people that no one expected. White women. Well, on the subject of cancel culture, Burr turned his attention to the woke movement. Before it got carpet bombed with excess and blown up by various slacktivist groups and individuals, the phrase, stay woke, meant something else entirely. It was simply to be aware of what was going on, with an emphasis on minorities. This isn't too much to ask, I don't think. To be aware of the struggles that other people face is a very uniquely human thing to do. But, Per usual, us shitty humans had to ruin it with our narcissism. Quote, Somehow, 
white women swung their Gucci-booted feet over the fence of oppression and stuck themselves at the front of the line, end quote, was the line Burr, that Bill Burr used. The crowd instantly spattered him with a highly uncomfortable laughter, but Burr didn't stop. He continued with his barrage, absolutely eviscerating an entire population of people for placing themselves in a place they should not be, a place of privilege, a place where they thought they had the right to do something. Sound familiar? I've noticed this trend as well, and I found it incredibly strange. People, not just white women, but who can think they can lump themselves into a group just so they can be lab labeled as a glorified victim. This is, like I said, very strange. But yet people do it anyway. Why? Because that glorious word we mentioned earlier, entitlement. People, white women in this case, simply believe that they're entitled to hop onto a movement because that they have no business being part of, and Bill Burr shredded them for it. But oh, did people get mad. Who told him that he should speak out on this, one angry white woman said. SNL really thought this was the best choice for a host, said another. They kept piling on while Mr. Burr sat in the corner watching his feed blow up, knowing that he had gotten them. Because these angry replies, mostly by white women, proved his point. Burr, like all great comedians, simply made an observation and pointed it out in a very funny way. We all know it's absurd for this demographic of people to be doing this, but no one calls them out on it. They're most likely too afraid of the mob who now thinks they have to protect them. As one of the bravest people in our popular culture, Burr took it on himself to do so. Because Bill Burr has nothing to lose. He has his own comedy company that he runs. He has several podcasts. One of the great com comedic hour-longs of the last decade. Several of them, in fact. Countless spots on television as a guest on podcasts. He's getting into movies now. He has a beautiful wife, or he has a beautiful wife, who is black, by the way, as if this whole situation could even get more hilarious, and two beautiful children. I don't think he gives a single shit about one of, the, one of those replies. He knows what his role is. Comedians in our culture play the role of a great equalizer. When there is an imbalance in society, they see, their, they, they see their role, if they're doing so correctly, as a way of righting the wrong, for correcting the emotional overcompensation. And the emotional overcompensation being taken in this context that is, of the, is that of entitlement, because entitlement is an emotional overcompensation. How so, do you might ask? There's a widely known poem that was first published in 1946 by a man named Martin Niemöller, entitled First They Came. The poem's subject deals with the, deals with the slippery slope of the heinous propaganda that the Nazi party spewed in Germany in relation to who they rounded up to send to the concentration camps. Niemöller, a Lutheran prince, thought he was safe because he supposedly met all the requirements. He thought he was untouchable, so he didn't need to say anything or protect anybody. But then they did end up coming for him. The reason? There was no one left that wanted to speak for him. Niemöller isolated himself so far away from everyone else due to his entitlement, his feeling that he didn't need to help any of the innocent people get taken off to the death camp. This is an extreme example, as I doubt many more people were in his shoes than were someone who took the opposite stance, but it remains an incredibly powerful example. The reason why Burr's monologue got so many people mad, in this case white women, was because there was no one left to speak for them. Due to their entitlement, according to Burr, they needed to be humbled and put in their place to realize that they were, indeed, not above everyone and could not just infiltrate just any movement or thing simply because they wanted to. And that is what entitlement really is. It's not that much different from modern wokeness, which, from which, which, which it's derived from, really. Entitlement is establishing a false social hierarchy based on nothing meritocratic at all. You, in all of your horrible narcissism, just decide to put yourself into a group or position because you feel like it, because you, quote, deserve it because you feel like you don't ever respect anyone else who might have a stake to that claim. They certainly do if they're doing even one more ounce of the work to get there as you are. 
Entitlement is a hell of a drug simply because it's contagious. It's incredibly easy to say that you're something, but completely act like something else. Improving your merit with nothing but words to back you up, you automatically create a false sense of credibility that can spread like wildfire for others who want to chase that same thing. This does nothing but elevate the wrong people to the wrong places, and makes other people who are taking the straight and narrow path feel shitty about themselves for no reason at all. Because I truly believe that all humans know that there's a right way to get ahead. There's a reason why everyone loves an underdog and why we root for Cinderella stories in every aspect of life. Because they have to work harder to get there. It's not a complex calculus. American res respect effort and hustle. We're not a fan of Big Brother stepping on our Lego set. Ask the British, they'll tell you. And we see this all the time. Take this very unfortunate example. Young people do stupid shit when they develop romantic feelings for someone, and I see this happen particularly with young men. It might be because I am one, but we'll equalize this equation later. As social media and other forms of vanity have arisen, the tide that lifts all boats, entitlement, has risen along with it. And it's taken an insidious form in the opposite sex. Some young, young women are now are so entitled that it makes me want to puke. With Instagram filters and Photoshop, nearly any girl, regardless of whether they actually are or not, can make themselves look attractive. Some of them use that attractiveness to hold the other young men hostage, to make them wait on them, to cater them, and allow them to be treated like dog shit. Why do men allow this to happen? Because they're hot? Give me a break. There are a lot of hot women in the world, and I mean a lot of them. Unfortunately for all the women out there, I think you outnumber us. Sorry to shit in your cornflakes. And to be fair to my female readers out there, men do the same thing as well. They lead girls on, cheat on them, make them feel like garbage, play mind games, and women fall for it. Why, I ask you? Because they look good in a suit? Because they make a lot of money? Because they lie about making a lot of money? Because they're in a fraternity or social organization? It's stupid. The reason why this happens is due to one thing and one thing only. Entitlement. Just because you are or even act like you are these things does not give you the right to superimpose them onto anyone in the form of a value structure or hierarchy. The sad thing is, you might be these things. You might have those traits. But who gives a fuck if you don't reciprocate that with decency and respect towards another human being? There must be work that occurs in order for people to get treated a certain way or another. When you do not work to get that somewhere, when you can simply assert your incompetence or virtue because you feel like it, it automatically turns the world inside out. The world's best buildings don't stand because they feel like standing. They stand up because they're built by the best material, designed by the best designers, and put together by the best people and engineers. Any structure that isn't composed of merit and honest work ethic in between them is a sham and will eventually collapse. When building another thing in your personal life, the structure should stay the same. A good relationship with a family member, friend, or significant other cannot be sustained on entitlement. It's one thing to want to be friends with someone because they're popular, please a relative because you want them to like you or want to date someone because they're attractive. But a question needs to be asked. What happens when it gets flipped on you? What happens when you actually start to have to get depth beneath the surface? Why on earth would you ever consider investing in something knowing that it's going to be propped up on excess, on a false assertion? You wouldn't build a building like that. You wouldn't invest in a company like that. Well, a lot of people would, but that's a separate issue altogether. It just doesn't make sense. So why? Because we all get sucked into its pull. It's about always about taking the short path, the path of least resistance. We all want to get to the front of the line and have the ability to reap the benefits without mining any of those benefits for ourselves. And we'll explore the reason behind this next. In my senior year of college, I had a professor who taught a course about entrepreneurial finance. He was in his 50s, a former entrepreneur of a dot-com tech startup that went under, 
and had since made a living doing consulting, investing, and teaching ever since. As finance was the top major at my entire university and entrepreneurship a hot-button orgasm topic for many ambitious finance students, his class was both very coveted and very difficult to get into. I ended up getting into it last minute, where I was placed among the man and several other students whom I had grown to know very well going throughout the program. But something seemed off to me about him. His ego wasn't just big, it was gigantic, much bigger than all the people who were more than twice as young as him. He was incredibly cynical and used to use dry humor, all of which made his jokes sound incredibly condescending and douchey when paired with his overinflated ego. He talked endlessly about the quote, glory days, and how he wanted to impart his wisdom upon our malleable young minds. It just didn't compute. Entrepreneurship, at least to me, requires humility. Starting your own business and going out deliberately into the cold, hard world of business for capitalism to most likely shred you to pieces is no walk in the park. I have several entrepreneurs in my family, including my mom. It's remarkably hard work. But he was different. The rules just didn't seem to apply to what he was saying. He just said what he wanted to say, even if it wasn't true, and people ate him alive. His reputation ballooned because people viewed him as some kind of friendly god king. Kind of like Xerxes, only without the nose ring. I just couldn't put two and two together. Why did people like this guy? I talked with him one-on-one, -on -one. he's a nice guy. But I didn't get the idolatry. I couldn't respect him as much as other professors like him. I was an entrepreneurship minor in college as well, and was primarily taught by two gentlemen who I hold in incredibly high regard. They are, in my opinion, who entrepreneurs should emulate when they try to create a business. But they don't sell as well as this guy. No one pines to ask them for advice or take their class. I was also puzzled by this, but I soon figured it out. The two professors who I respected more actually put in the work in order to achieve that level of status. This might seem puzzling. Neither of them had had a technology.com startup. They simply were in somewhat innovative small-town disruptors who got some angel investment and seed money and eventually exited the company. Their companies didn't end up being worth very much. If I remember correctly, the highest my other professors reached was tens of millions. Before it imploded, that is. But the other two also remembered something that my professor did not. They realized that the cost of exiting and losing meant something too. It ended up being so, so much so that they could remember how that felt, live with it, and not pretend to be someone that they were or not. I know a lot of people who overinflate who they are just, as, just so someone can see them as something more than what they currently exist as. I don't envy their existence, simply because they're living a lie. The funny thing about this story was that the two other professors who went to the overinflated professor for a startup pitch back when he founded his business. He won the competition and was granted the money. He was very grateful. The overinflated professor brought up their presentation during the class. He said it was one of the best pitches for a company he'd ever seen. When I asked him to clarify if it was the man I was thinking above, the only thing overinflated guys said was, quote, why? Did he ask about me? End quote. The two sides could not have been more different, and I couldn't figure out why they acted the way they did. All three started businesses, and all of them either exited the company they helped to found or outright flamed out. But then I realized one thing the overinflated guy had that the others didn't. Insecurity. In one of our final lessons of the year, my professor detailed the demise of his company, to his credit. It wasn't pretty. He had started the company, slowly got squeezed out of a decision-making role, and ended up imploding, losing all of his money, shattering his self-image, and having to move back in with his mother in his mid-30s. He could never become at peace. He had difficulties with his wife. His son had tragically passed away while fighting in the military. His other son had a debilitating mental and physical disability. He got dealt several rough hands in life. But he could never climb out of the abyss. 
He lived in it constantly, unable to shake that feeling of not rightness. It's not that he didn't want to get better. I'm sure he tried that, a lot. But it's one thing to want to get better versus actually trying to write what's going on between your ears. It's an incredibly hard thing, and it's not always a fair thing, but it is the right thing if you truly want to accomplish it. This requires effort and time and work. My two other professors wanted to do it, and they were at peace. They were very comfortable with what they did in the world and how you went about doing it. Unfortunately for my other professor, he was not. He had to emotionally overcompensate in order to make it through life, to convince himself that he wasn't a failure when he knew that he was, that he was in that regard. The ego was a direct result of his entitlement. He didn't want to deal with his problems or be honest about what he was, so he elevated himself above everyone else in order to have people think highly of him. He wanted people to like him and view him in God-King rarefied air, so that he filled the room with a big persona of lies in order to articulate that to them. People pursue an entitled mindset in order to forge an emotional overcompensation about something that they're not happy about. For my entrepreneurship professor, it was his perceived failure as an entrepreneur, of not ending up as some big shot with a massive company and ending up with a fucked up home life. For others, it's their lack of competence in other areas. And it's this area that the crux of the argument lies. In the world of Jordan B. Peterson, we are living in a, in the words of Jordan Peterson, rather, we are living in a war that has been being waged on competence itself. Competence, or the ability to be proficient at some kind of activity, is the defining aspect of human advancement. Through our advanced competence in our, all areas of culture, we have been able to transcend our former circumstances and create better and new lives for ourselves and the people that we care for. And this is also where the dynamic of privilege faces a crossroads. Privilege, or the ability to afford rights that others don't, directly conflicts with this. Just because someone has a better job than you, for example, didn't mean that they likely got it because of some inherently awful thing. They most likely got that job because they were better than you at one or many things. It's just a fact of life, although it's getting conflated now with some of the social justice hysteria that's going around. Equality of opportunity is not the same thing as equality of outcome. Of course people should have the same opportunities as everyone else, per what Burr said earlier. But people should not have the same outcomes as people. If this were to take place, human advancement would collapse. We wouldn't get better. We wouldn't innovate. We could very well all be satisfied, but with the world collapsing and people surrounding us on all sides to kick our asses, I don't think that would be necessarily be the prettiest picture either. This is the same for our personal lives as well. If we stop improving ourselves, if we declare war on competence, we stunt our own personal growth. When we adopt the mindset of entitlement, we disrupt any and all ability to truly get better at one thing versus another. We completely cut out at the knees that we will need in order to succeed in our chosen field of play. This is not good for you. It elevates you falsely putting you in arenas where you have no hope to succeed, and enables self-lies that you then project out to others. Additionally, there is one other metric of competence I want to touch on, that of responsibility. I am of the belief that there can be no competence in the world without first adopting the responsibility of becoming comp competent. The horse must come before the chariot, as it were. If you have no desire to truly improve yourself, you have no desire to become truly competent. Like business, it's binary. You're either putting in work or you're not. You're either making money or you're losing money. It's that simple. Responsibility also has another correlation to improvement, dealing with your own problems. In order to truly fix a problem, you must develop a mindset around creating a world where problems can be solved. Problems get solved by competent people, and they get created by incompetent people. And there is no better example to choose from than the one I'm finishing with now. All, all three men had problems, most of which were self-inflicted due to them starting their own companies. All three of them failed. But 
However, there is a difference between their failure. It's reasonable to assume that when you fail at something, you will currently deal with more problems than you had previously. I believe that assumption to be the correct one. But the number of problems don't really matter if you have the willingness to take on the responsibility of competence. The two men who did so correctly were able to reinvent themselves in the face of their problems. My professor that did not choose to, did not chose not to, and it let it run him into the ground. In order to overcompensate, he chose to blow up his ego and come across as something he was not. He would rather lie to himself and others than to reveal the truth about what he was doing. Even though he told of his failures and what he experienced, he never truly reconciled that with his own self-perception. The people he taught didn't adore him. They only adored who he projected he was. It's a true shame when someone who could, who could tell an admirable story about themselves ruins it by their desire to be liked and not face who they really are. My professor deferred the responsibility of competence and paid the price for it. While he was still quite successful, I bet he didn't feel it as much. The reason he probably didn't was because he knew he hadn't come to terms with who he was and what had happened to him. He was nothing more than a hollow shell, someone who had all the traits on the outside of someone who to look for, to for help and leadership, but nothing on the inside to make it even worth a stare. The other two men had legs to stand on. They could look themselves in the eyes and be proud. They weren't as hyped up as the other guy was, but there definitely was more substance than there was with him. They didn't lie about who they were. They simply were who they were. Nothing within themselves had a shred of entitlement in them. They didn't embellish or feel bad or feel that they had needed something to be more or better than what they already had. They just were, and that was good enough for them. Entitlement is a hell of a drug because of what lies, what lies, or what it lies about being able to bestow on us. Ugh. We all want to be looked on as someone with privilege, someone at the top, someone competent. Entitlement, per Burr, is simply cutting in front of the line of everyone else when you did, when you did little to no waiting. You didn't want to pay the cost of admission. And for that, you cannot hold yourself in high regard. You should only have to focus on doing the work needed in order to afford that position within yourself. In my opinion, there are three things that need to be done, three prices that need to be paid in order to fend off entitlement. Let's get into those now so we can stop acting like a bunch of cockolas. When I left college to go into the real world, I had a difficult choice to make. The summer before my senior year of college, I interned for a re really reputable company. It paid well, it could provide me a stable income, and it was a, in a, quote, good field of work with a lot of opportunity. I was the top intern in the entire company, and they were looking to compensate me appropriately for it. It was almost a no-brainer that I took it. But something didn't feel right to me. The introductory part of my career was going to be very exciting. But what would happen afterwards? The first part of anything is exciting. The start of a relationship, when you first move to a new place, the start of, the start of an exciting project. The real question you need to ask is the one I just proposed. What happens afterwards? When the honeymoon phase and the sex appeal wears off, it's most likely where you're going to be stuck with for the duration of whatever you're embarking upon. The people that don't prepare themselves for that are the ones that usually end up getting fucked the worst. What came afterwards for the entry-level job and the job offer which I was most concerned with? I analyzed the company from three vantage points. Even though I was the top intern, it's not like my compatriots that were getting offered alongside me were stupid. Far from it. They were very good at what they were hired to do, and most of them were extended offers that were extended offers deserve those opportunities to advance their careers. The pipeline coming into the company alongside me was far from the issue. A great part of my internship was the access we had to executives in the company. The company itself was big, but not so big that everything inside of it didn't seem accessible from our lowly underling status. 
The company made a concerted effort to get to the interns and young professionals in the company access to those that can help propel their careers and make their lives easier. They were nice for the most part. It made us interns feel good that we were making the right decisions with the right company to make our, quote, right futures. But there was one area of the company that concerned me greatly. The middle. In a normal distribution in statistics, the tails are largely irrelevant when it comes to getting sample data. It's the big pile of data points in the middle that are usually the most telling. And the big pile of data points in the middle of, the of this company told me one thing. It was bloated. The big tip-off was something that didn't hit until about seven months later, after I had made my decision. It, ironically, came from Professor Big Ego. Professor Big Ego told us that once he began to look for outside investors and for people to staff his company, he did not file a certain form that would allow those inside the company to take his shares of stock from him if they felt like going in a different direction. This proved to be very problematic, as my professor would later find out. As the people that went to his startup began to force him out, they didn't do it in blunt fashion. They did it by giving him a title. Executive Vice President. This is something that sounds very fancy. You probably see a lot of your parents' friends having a similar title to that on LinkedIn. But in reality, it means one thing. Absolutely fucking nothing. The title in and of itself is just a title. It carries no weight, no nothing. And looking around in the small office that I worked at and out of Pittsburgh, I could see that this non-weightness about share being shared across the entire office. In an office of about 20 people, eight of them had the title of, quote, vice president somewhere in their job description. This confused me immensely. Wait a second, I thought. Isn't there only supposed to be one vice president? That's how our government works, and it's a pretty big deal that we have that organization right. But that didn't matter. It made people feel important, but these people were not important to the company at all. They were simply bloated roles meant to make employees feel better about themselves, to buy their loyalty to make them stay. These people were not second in command of anything, not even close. In other words, they weren't competent enough to be deserving of that title. The organization itself was entitled. This bothered me, so I turned down the job offer. I got three calls back from several executives in the company that pressed me to reconsider. My parents didn't like my choice. They're a fan of stability, like I am, and thought I was throwing away a golden ticket to that stability. But it didn't feel right to me. I wasn't comfortable taking that big of a leap into something that I didn't feel was worth it. So I kept looking around and eventually stumbled upon another company that I did like. The odd thing was, I knew nothing about the company itself. I barely knew the name. I didn't know what the products or services they sold, and I didn't know who ran the company, what kind of pipeline they had going in in terms of talent. I only knew one thing about the company besides the name. And I was like, because I knew a guy that worked there. He went to my high school, was a sensational athlete, went to the same university, and then went to work for the company after college, where he's proceeded to kill it ever since. He self-financed most of his education. He grew up in a shitty household and managed to make a better one for himself. He's had a steady girlfriend for going on eight years now. He knew who he was and inside and out. He was the model. So I reached out to him, and he was gracious enough to give me the time of day. We talked for a while, and I loved everything he had to say. It was exactly what I wanted to hear when I went into it. If you work hard, you go and get far. If you don't, you get cycled out of the company and replaced by somebody else. Even though they have some bizarre corporate HR politics, it's completely and utterly a meritocracy. Nothing matters unless you produce. There was no entitlement to be found. So, in an industry that I had no experience or knowledge of, no connections then, not a, without any fallback, I went in and got the job and moved my life out to Boston. I can say for certain now that it was a great decision for my career. Entitlement is a hell of a drug, and I wanted no part of being an addict. However, it was not an easy path. 
My dad has a saying that he repeats all the time that was told to him by an executive at a company he worked for. You get the job, then you figure out the rest afterwards. If you feel like you're drowning, it's a sign that you need to get better, that you need to get better fast. In a non-entitled organization, that can be the key to its survival or its extinction. Whenever serious business or money is in the line, competence always wins. Therefore, I had a lot to learn when I stepped into the arena. But I was honest with myself, saw that I had a long way to go, and accepted that as a part of the general transition that it would take in order to get there. I got better, and I'm looking forward to get better every day. Because I know that, with lackadaisical effort, entitlement will sink in, and I will get whooped by someone who isn't. It's not an easy to process to be a hard worker constantly. You cannot have an off switch for very long. It's not healthy to go so hard in so many places all the time. There is a cost to that as well. But it's also not healthy to your, poten your potential and who you should be by getting off your own high off your own entitlement and narcissism. This, the three steps I mentioned, those are easy. Step one, be honest. Ask yourself the tough questions. Is it really worth it to assert myself over someone where I have nothing that shows I can effectively do so? Do I have the right to disrespect someone who does? Why should I be the one to do these things? Is there a way where I can go about it in the proper way where I can actually earn it? In being honest, you immediately get rid of the gateway to entitlement, which, in essence, is just one big lie. The worst thing you can do is lie. Lies do nothing but cover up for your own deficiencies and become a gateway to thinking you're something that you're not. It also opens up to another avenue, the avenue of competence. In our current war of competence that has been raging on for several years, the biggest weapon formed against it is that of its antidote. Step 2. Do the exact opposite of what creates entitlement, i.e. become more competent. Create routes for you to become better at whatever your goal is by unveiling that path as shunning that of entitlement. Ask yourself more questions. What is holding me back from becoming better? What do I need to fix about my approach? About myself? Why do I suck so bad at something? How am I so supposed to improve? When you ask questions like this, you open up numerous other subpaths that can help create no more nuanced routes to get to your desired position. Whether that be running for office, creating a name for yourself in an entry-level job, or attempting to meet a new friend. As someone with a lot of problems in a lot of different areas, I can tell you firsthand that there are no shortage of questions that you can and should ask yourself about how to improve your standing in the world without inappropriately infringing on others to advance fairly in society. Step 3. Always look to become more competent. We must be careful not to succumb to diminishing returns of value, but we must also create a constant pursuit of improving certain things about our desired goal. If you do not have standards, next week's topic by the way, it will be very hard to judge where you're at becoming better or worse. My advice, have them. Create an optimal level of range for where you can allow yourself to both climb up and slip up so you can know where to correct yourself. The, the reality is only the best buildings in the world get built. The best salespeople make the most commission at the end of the day. The most attractive people are the most attractive people for a reason. The people who are good in one area or get there or another get there by putting in the work necessary to do so. I see a lot of people who could be very attractive but piss it all away from poor eating and exercise habits. I think a lot of people I see a lot of people with potential that think they're hot shit but eventually become just shit when the rubber has to meet the road. The three steps open the gateway of competence and shut the gate of entitlement. It's up to you to walk through the proper one. Entitlement is an infectious disease. It's one that can kill ambition, stunt growth, and trample honest attempts at improvement. However, within the confines of the right frame of mind, the back of the line is the proper place to start. Only by working your way to the top through honest competence can you achieve a merit and status of true value. Entitlement, a cheat of that metric of human achievement, 
only emboldens you to play, get, take, take a place of privilege you do not deserve and, even worse, potentially away from someone who is deserving. And the only people potentially not deserving are those aforementioned wildebeest that piss on toilet seats. Those assholes don't deserve anything but a kick in the dick and some manners. So, that's the spiel, guys. I think it's an important topic, so hope you guys thought so as well. Own the day, open your mind. See you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?